Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 3, the book of the prophet Micah in the third chapter. Last week, we began a brief study uh, through this book, and we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and today we're going to study chapter 3, where we will really see just a, a direct continuation of what Micah has been saying in chapters 1 and 2. Let me remind you just of a few small details we need to remember that the book of Micah is written to both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, and that their capital cities are Samaria in the north and Jerusalem in the south. So Micah is written to both kingdoms. It often mentions their capital cities. And last week, we saw in Micah 1 and 2 that through the prophet Micah, Micah was exposing the sins of the people, especially their idolatry, and he was marking Samaria and Jerusalem as sort of the hubs or the centers of the wickedness of the kingdoms because the kings rule there, but also they had cultic centers, temples, of course, the temple in Jerusalem, but also worship, idolatrous worship took place in Samaria as well as other parts of the northern kingdom. So, Micah is exposing the sins of the people of God. As we read through Micah 3, we're going to do the same thing as last week, where I'll make comments as we go, as we read through the text, and then we will draw five lessons from that text. So there's no outline as we explain the text, we're just walking through it, but at the end of that explanation, we will have five points of uh, lesson or application afterwards. And as we read Micah 3, we're going to see a pattern. Micah's going to address a group, expose their sins, and then he's going to declare a curse or a consequence on, that, on them for that sin, and he'll do this three times. He'll address a group, expose their sin, declare a curse and consequence, move on to the next group, expose their sin, declare a curse and consequence three times, and that will complete uh, Micah chapter 3. And so Micah 1 and 2 is focused on Israel as a whole. Micah chapter 3 narrows down to the leader classes or the leader groups in the kingdoms. Let's read Micah chapter 3. And the first group that he addresses are the magistrates, the government leaders. Verses 1 through 3. And I said, hear you heads or chiefs, of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel? Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So Micah very forcefully confronts the, the ruling class, the governors, the leaders, the chiefs, the princes of the people, accusing them of injustice. They're not defending the innocent and delivering the needy. Rather, they are oppressors who are using their positions of power to take advantage of the people and to enrich themselves. 
Verse 4, what's the consequence for their sin? Verse 4, then or therefore they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. As they should have defended the innocent and the needy, but failed to do so, so also when they cry out for defense, in other words, when the foreign armies invade, God says, I won't listen. I won't hear you. When you ask for help us, help us, greater power than we, you were the greater power to the needy and you didn't help them. So when the foreign enemies come to invade you, I will not hear your pleas for mercy. Then Micah moves on to a second group, which are the prophets. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So we have here prophets for profit, or for-profit prophets. When they get something for their message, or rather, they will say whatever is needed to say to get something. Their message is dependent upon their stomachs being filled. When someone pays you or gives you something to eat, you give them a good prophecy. If someone doesn't uh, give anything to you, you declare a curse and war and strife against them. And there are numerous examples in the Old Testament of so-called prophets acting this way, and I'd like you to look at one with me uh, for just a moment. So please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. We can see a whole group of for-profit prophets. And let's read beginning in verse 3, 2 Chronicles 18. The, con- the context is the king of Israel and the king of Judah, in a rare moment of cooperation, they are trying to determine if they want to go together to war against the Syrians. Second Chronicles 18, verse 3 and following. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat <coughs> excuse me, said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may, we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to, to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, a very splendorous scene. And they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, 
Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, that he's swearing, that's, he's swearing an oath. As the Lord lives by the life of Jehovah, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And he answered, go up and triumph. They will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master, which means the king will die. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me? But evil? Now you see what happens when men adjust their messages for money. You have two kings arrayed in royal splendor together at the same time outside of Samaria, the capital city, and 400 prophets. And what do the prophets do? They want to be in the favor of the king. They want to ascend in the court, and so to speak. And so they speak favorably to the king and give him a good message, but Micaiah speaks the word of the Lord. Let's go back to Micah chapter 3. There are other examples of the same kind of thing happening in the Old Testament. Micah accuses the prophets in verse 5 of declaring peace when they're well fed and war when they are not. So this is their sin what is the curse or consequence for these for-profit prophets? Verse 6, Therefore, because of this, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Micah declares a, a silence, a darkness that is a curse upon the prophets. When they consult Jehovah and say, what is your will with regard to this? What is your word with regard to that? There will be no answer. They will be blind. They will be deaf. They will not be able to see. The seers will not see. The hearers will not hear. And so therefore the speakers cannot speak because they have neither seen nor heard. We have to remember that uh, the imagery of, of night to them would be a much darker darkness than we are accustomed to with all the light pollution of Southern California. Uh, if you say it will be night to you, we think it doesn't have perhaps the same effect on us because we don't think of the night as being particularly dark. But in a place with no artificial light, such as electricity, especially if there's no moon, it's exceedingly dark. All you would have is starlight, possibly moonlight, and maybe a torch or a fire of some kind, none of which is particularly bright. And so 
Darkness will descend upon these false prophets, and they will have nothing to say because God will not speak to them. Remember, it's the same kind of curse as the leaders. The leaders say, God, defend us. He says, I will not defend you. The prophets say, God, speak to us. And he says, I will not speak to you. You have abused your place of leadership. I will not defend you. You have abused your place of of prominence as prophets. I will not speak through you. You will have no word from me. And then in verse 8, in this progression of addressing a group and cursing a group, verse 8 is a contrast. Micah says about himself, he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah says, I speak with the voice of Jehovah. I speak with the Spirit of the Lord. He speaks through me. It is his message that I declare. And I denounce the sin of Israel. I expose the transgressions of Jacob. I reveal the sin of Judah. Whether they like it or not, this is the word of the Lord. And then Micah concludes this chapter with a third address where he doesn't so much hone in on one group of leaders as he exposes all of the leaders and again declares a curse on them. Verse 9, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, magistrates, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads or chiefs give judgment for a bribe, Its priests, they haven't been mentioned, but here they are. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So we see a sweeping accusation. The magistrates, the priests, and the prophets All of the leaders of the people of Israel are corrupt. They pervert justice. They teach the law so-called for a price. They prophesy or, or use divination for money. And yet they're presumptuous. They lean on the Lord. If you if you lean on something, you're you're relying, it's going to support me. If you have a staff or a walking stick, you lean on it because you trust it to hold you up. And so Micah is saying, you think presumptuously that you can just passively lean on Jehovah by saying, don't we have the temple? Doesn't God dwell in the temple? Isn't this Jehovah's dwelling place on earth? What could possibly happen to us? Nothing could go wrong. No disaster shall come upon us. But Micah shows that the, they, these priests who should be the keepers of the purity of the law and the prophets who should declare the law authoritatively and purely, they don't know the law. Why? He proves that they don't know the law because they say no disaster shall come upon us. And I want to say to these priests and prophets, have you read Deuteronomy? (laughs) Have you read the law of Moses, which very specifically calls out these precise sins? and declares God's judgment on you if you do not reform yourselves and repent of them. So for them to say no disaster shall come upon us, 
indicates a complete ignorance uh, or taking seriously of the law of Moses. Therefore, what? What's the consequence? Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, cleared. Right now it has buildings and all kinds of things. It's just cleared. When you plow a field, you take all the stones out of it and you build a, a wall. In, in New England, there are stone walls that run through all the forests because at one time they were all cleared fields and all the stones became walls to, to mark out the boundaries, but it's all forest now. If Zion is a plowed field, there's nothing in it. It's just cleared dirt. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. When people cease to dwell somewhere, it's amazing how quickly nature retakes its lost domain. And Jerusalem, the great capital city, is described as a wooded height. Let's go to Jerusalem. There's a nice forest there. (laughs) He's saying it's just going to be a place for trees to grow. And it's amazing how fast that can happen. He's saying there won't be anyone living there. It'll just be trees sprouting up. I remember growing up in in, uh, Massachusetts, the small patch of woods behind our house was my playground every day, and there were very large um, power towers keeping power lines moving from a nearby substation to everywhere else on the grid. And the power company came through to remove all of those very tall, huge power line towers, power towers, that sounds better. They were removing the power towers. And I was so upset because in order to remove the power towers, they had to bulldoze a lot of the woods around those towers. And I thought, all is lost. My, wo- my dear woods are destroyed. And I was shocked at how quickly the woods just regrew. And you never would have even known those towers had been there in the first place. This is what Micah says about Jerusalem. It's a ruin that becomes a forest and nothing more. You leaders who think nothing can happen to this city, just watch and wait and see. So Micah 3, as I said, continues the same themes of chapters 1 and 2. Israel and Judah are guilty of idolatry and corruption, oppression and wickedness, from the magistrates to the prophets to the priests, and God will therefore pour out curses and judgment upon them as a consequence for their sin. What can we learn from Micah chapter 3? Five lessons. Five lessons to learn from Micah chapter 3. Number one, your sin is worse than you think. Your sin is worse than you think. In verses 1 through 3, we read something that you would expect to find in a grindhouse film. You think, I don't know what a grindhouse film is. Good. (laughs) You don't want to know. They're the most exceedingly, excessively gory movies there are that delight in all kinds of just visceral disgustingness. And you never want to see those films because they make you recoil and almost vomit. I don't want to see those kinds of films. I just know what they are. But they're... They make those films because some people oddly and pervertedly delight in that kind of thing. Well, we wouldn't want to look at those movies. But Micah forces the Israelites to look at it. And he says, this is what you're doing. 
he describes visceral cannibalism, chewing and gnawing on people, flaying their skin. You take off the skin, removing the meat, separating the meat from the bones, breaking the bones, crushing it up, and making a stew out of it. They boil it, they mash it, they stick it in a stew. Micah uses the gruesome language of cannibalism to describe the sins of the magistrates against the people. And no doubt the rulers would, be, would recoil and say, what are, you, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. We're not flaying people and chopping them up and eating them. That's stupid, Micah. That's ridiculous. But remember Micah 1 and 2, which talked about men who plot in their, when they lie down on their beds, they plot and they plan how to steal things from other people, and then in the morning they do it. Well, these are the ones who are oppressing and stealing. It was the leading class who was using their power and their authority and their positions of prominence to accumulate for themselves great wealth and property at the expense of the livelihoods and the inheritances of their brothers and sisters in Israel. And so Micah calls it what it is. He says, this is cannibalism. You get all the benefit, and they lose their livelihoods. In other words, it's like eating them. You break them up into pieces, and you devour them. You are cannibals. The people were being hunted by their leaders, and the actions of those leaders were predatory. Who wins and who loses? The, the rich get richer with more things and more power, and the poor get poorer, losing what little they had. It's not any kind of mutual exchange. It's complete oppression and taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable. Those leaders would not have wanted to accept just how wicked they were. They would say, well, don't you see the paperwork? Don't you see we have the signs and the seals and everything? It's all done the right way. It's all according to policy and procedure. They, they signed their names, didn't they? They would not want to accept their predatory behavior, which amounted to cannibalism. But the lesson here is not about them. It's about us. Your sin is worse than you think. There are many people who are very critical of themselves. They're very hard on themselves in many things. But when it comes to your sin, you probably act very differently. And let's not be so general that people wiggle their way out of it. In certain sins, you're probably very easy on yourself. You're probably very gentle with yourself. You probably use anything and everything you can to blame anyone or anything else. Well, I was just really tired, or I was just really this or the other thing. Well, you know, and you rationalize in your mind. You just play it down. It, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. And oftentimes it's only upon being confronted by others that we realize just how destructive and wicked our actions are really are. Micah wants the leaders to, to realize your actions are hurting people, destroying people, causing pain and suffering to people. Children, what are some of the common sins that children commit? Being disobedient to your parents, being disrespectful to your parents, being unthankful or discontent, 
or being unkind to your siblings. These are the most common, probably, of the sins that children commit. Do you think it's not so bad? It's not so bad. What's the big deal? My disobedience, my disrespect, my ingratitude, my discontent, fighting, being mean to my siblings, is it that bad? You're hurting other people. You're hurting your parents. And you're hurting your siblings. Ask yourself this, children. Is it pleasant to be your mom or your dad because of the way that you act? Do you know that you actually could be a cause of suffering for your parents? That it's hard to be your parent? That it's difficult to be your mom or your dad? Do you realize your disobedience and your disrespect and your discontentment and your ingratitude hurts mommy and daddy? And that when you're mean to your siblings, you're hurting another person? You may, think of your, you may not think much of your sin, but you should. And when you see that it hurts other people, your parents, your mommy, and your daddy may have a bad day because of what you did. And when you're not thankful or grateful, it also makes it more difficult for them. They're always going to be your mommy and daddy, and they're going to love you, but you can cause a great deal of misery for them. Do you think of your actions in that way? You need to repent of your behavior. And you need to remember that your sins against your parents are ultimately sins against God who commands you in his law, honor your father and your mother. So not only are you sinning in a way that is hurting mommy and daddy or hurting your brother or sister, you're also, and above all, sinning against God. And now what seemed like just childish behavior is quite serious sin. Teens. We're not just talking to little kids. You also are disobedient and disrespectful, unthankful and discontent at times. Are you selfish and hard-hearted so that you just don't care if you make your parents' lives miserable? Shouldn't parents always be positive and, and, and not talk about their children in this way? I'm talking about you in this way. And you need to be serious. Micah put cannibalism in front of the Israelites, and when they wanted to turn their head, he should turn their heads right back and say, look at it. Don't look away. Spouses, in our study of 1 Peter, when we spent time on marriage, one of the things that we said is that our sins are not victimless crimes. In the context of marriage, our sins are not victimless crimes. It is in the power of a spouse to make the life of their spouse a heaven or hell on earth. A husband as head, if he is selfish and lazy or unkind and angry, brings misery to his wife and the house. And a wife under her husband's headship, if she is unsubmissive or if she is lazy or contentious or angry, she too brings misery to her husband. On the vacation that we took recently, um, cruise ships often have a comedian of sorts on, on board, and you never know what you're going to get. And so I attended one of the, the sessions, the shows, session sounds like therapy, uh, one of the shows, and the, the vast majority of this comedian's presentation, his bit, it was all about marital strife. And that's an easy target because everyone experiences it. Everyone experiences conflict and difficulty 
in their marriage, and so it's easy to appeal to common experience, and a lot of comedy does that. But it was horrible, because all of the things that he was saying, they're not funny. That's not something to laugh at about how a woman makes a man miserable or how a man makes a woman miserable and everyone laughs. I was appalled. I was thinking, he's speaking the truth of what really goes on, but this is a reason for lamentation, not laughter. All of you should be crying and saying, we are guilty. Instead of saying, oh yeah, we do that to each other. Ha ha ha. You should say, why do we do this to each other? Why am I inflicting pain on my spouse? It was ridiculous. And I use that point to say, look at someone who doesn't realize the depth of their sin, such that they laugh at it. What should be a cause for lamentation becomes a source of laughter. Well, we are not immune to doing the same thing. Sometimes it's seeing a picture of yourself and you say, whoa, I need to exercise because I didn't see it until I saw someone else take a picture of me or that kind of thing. We have to be confronted with the depth of our sin because it's worse than you think. Are you a cannibal to your spouse, devouring them? They suffer, I benefit. Of course I'm not a cannibal, that's ridiculous. Do they suffer but you benefit? Then you are a cannibal. Children, Parents, these are just two areas, or spouses, in which we sin greatly, and our sin is worse than we think. We need to repent of it, turn away from it, and enjoy the blessing of peace that comes from forgiveness and holiness. What is the therefore for your sin? If you really want to estimate and judge rightly the depth of your sin, ask, how is it to be punished? You know, when you speed on the freeway, I'm sure you never do, but when other people speed on the freeway, they may get a ticket and pay some money and possibly do some traffic school. If you hurt someone or or rob a store, there are greater penalties and so on and so forth. We have different penalties for different crimes, and so we assess the value or the, the, the depth of a given crime by its punishment. What is the punishment for sin? What is the punishment for any and all sin? Because it is sin against an infinitely holy God. Because it is a perversion of that goodness and holiness in which and with which God created us. It is to be sent away from the light and life of God to hell and to suffer judgment forever and ever in that madness and pain that we described last week. If you want to rightly judge the depth of your sin, it's not just judged by how it hurts other people, though that is a a real way in which we ought to think of it and be alert. It's also by judging how will God punish it. Micah concludes each of these three sections with a therefore or a then or a because of. When you cry for mercy, God will not hear. When you cry for God's word, he will not speak. When you think that everything will go on as it always has, your place will become an empty ruin. If you want to see your sin rightly, then look at its punishment, hell, and the suffering of the body and the soul forever and ever and ever. Your sin is worse than you think. 
Secondly, the second lesson to learn from Micah chapter 3. Do not confuse the power of rhetoric with the power of the Spirit. Do not confuse the power of rhetoric with the power of the Spirit. Micah 1 through 3, first three chapters, is very hard on the prophets. In chapters 1 and 2, Micah said, if there was a preacher who, who preached peace and prosperity, he would be the preacher for this people. And he said in Micah 1, you say, do not preach, do not tell us the bad news, only tell us peace. And in verse 3, we see the prophets, the four prophet prophets, were happy to comply. They were happy to tailor their message so that they would receive the benefit. So how do you discern between the true and the false prophets? If you have, in 2 Chronicles 18, 400 prophets that all say with a united voice, go up and conquer, and then you have one prophet who says, the king's going to die, King Ahab, and the, the armies will be scattered. How do you know which one is genuine? Micah claims in verse 8 that he is filled with power while the rest of the prophets, or the four prophet prophets, are not. How do you tell the difference between Micah and the rest? How do you discern a true prophet? Well, sadly, the common practice of many by default is to discern it through the manner of presentation, how that person speaks, their mannerisms, or the power of their voice, or their eloquence, because we are easily swayed by showmanship and rhetoric. And we often gauge the goodness of a speaker by how well they speak, so to speak. So in Second Chronicles we read about Micaiah, uh, not Micaiah, it was Zedekiah, the prophet, who made these iron horns. And with this dramatic display of, look everyone, I've brought these iron horns to show you this morning, and I want you to know, God has told me, with these iron horns you will, you will prevail, you will prosper. Everyone says, whoa, did you see that? Did you hear that? He has these iron horns, and God said this and that and the other thing through him. The dramatic display tugs on the heart. It, it moves our affections because we're so easily wowed, as I said, by showmanship. Now, the idea of doing strange things at God's bidding is not entirely unheard of. Some of the things Jeremiah and Ezekiel did are just downright weird. <laughs> and God told them to do it. But how can you discern a true prophet of God? It's not the boom of their voice. It's not their use of rhyme and rhythm. It's not their Scottish accent. Sorry. It's not their dramatic gestures or their vivid storytelling. All of those can be useful tools that are put in place to subserve the actual purpose of a preacher, which is to declare the message, the word of God in its purity. Micah says he's filled with the power of the Spirit. Why? To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So the measure of a minister or the power of the preacher is not in the showmanship and the rhetoric and the eloquence, but rather it's in the message itself. It's not in the man, 
It's in the message, and the man's duty is to give the message. Does he tell the truth? That's the question. Does he speak for God? Does he say those, the hard things? Does he confront our sin? Because the power of the Spirit accompanies the word of God, not the showmanship or the rhetoric or the dramatic style of the preacher. But be honest, have you ever heard a sermon that was very well presented and caught yourself thinking, now that was the sermon? Have you ever thought to yourself, now that is preaching? Have you ever thought to yourself, I could listen to that preacher for the rest of my life? If you do that, then you will begin to compare men to men. And it is true, there are speaking gifts, and there's nothing wrong with acknowledging a gifted speaker and even as preachers attempting to be as effective in our communication as possible. But none of that makes a man faithful, and none of that makes his message truly powerful. Because what actually demonstrates that the power of God has accompanied the word of God is not when you say, now that was preaching, or I could listen to that preacher forever, but rather it's when you say, I'm convicted of my sin. It's when you say, I believe more strongly. It's when your faith is fortified. It's when your sanctification is increased. It's when your obedience to God grows. That's when the Holy Spirit has taken the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, and extended the blade all the way to your heart so that your conscience is touched, not just your emotions. It's when the sinner says, I am a sinner. And my only salvation is in Jesus Christ, and I believe in him. That's when the power of God has gone forth. The power of God has gone forth. It's when we fight sin. It's when we grow in holiness. It's when we love God more. It's when we believe more deeply. This is when the power of God has accompanied the message and been at work among us. Jesus Christ will not rebuke his heralds for lacking a perfect outline or having a basic vocabulary. He won't say, you know, you didn't alliterate this outline. That's not good preaching. No, he would accuse any herald who didn't give the message faithfully. He would say, I told you, I commissioned you to give my people my message. What were you talking about? It's the ones who corrupt the message or distract the people from the message. These are the ones who are cursed. So the ultimate test of a messenger's faithfulness is the faithfulness of his message. So don't confuse the power of rhetoric for the power of the spirit. And just because someone's way of presentation tingled your bodily senses, it doesn't mean, wow, that was the spirit. It's when your conscience is convicted and your faith was moved. That's the power of the Spirit. Don't be distracted by personality and celebrity. Judge your preachers or any preacher by the faithfulness of their message. This leads us to number three, lesson number three. Do not tolerate leaders who will not, or excuse me, who will tolerate your sin or tickle your ears. Do not tolerate leaders who will tolerate your sin or tickle 
your ears. Micah 3 is very hard on the leader classes, the magistrates, the prophets, the priests. And this is largely due to the fact that those in positions of power and influence have a greater responsibility to use those things for the glory of God and the good of those under them. And so let's apply this to the church, which has an, an authority structure, which has leaders, in the elders especially. As members of the church, we should not tolerate leaders if they will tolerate our sin or tickle our ears. Micah said that the prophets of that day proclaimed peace and prosperity. Is it a popular thing today to preach prosperity? Of course. That's how you make millions. <laughs> Who's on TV? Whose books sell endlessly? Who is popular? It's those like Joel Austin who proclaim peace and prosperity for profit. They are for profit prophets, and their message is easy to preach endless prosperity. It's easy to say, it's nice to hear. But it's a lie. In our church, the teaching ministry of the church is both public and private. Public in the sermons and the Sunday schools, private in counseling and other forms of direct communication or one-on-one -on -one interaction. There is public and private teaching. And what we need from our leaders, what we need from our pastors, are pastors who are willing to confront us and willing to discipline us if we will not repent and willing to excommunicate us if we will not repent. And we should not tolerate any minister who would refuse to confront sin in the congregation. And visitors, you should not tolerate a church that does not practice church discipline. If a church does not practice church discipline, it's perverting justice. Micah spoke in the power of the Spirit to declare what? among other things, the transgressions of the people, to call them to account. Micah says that wicked leaders pervert justice and fail to call evildoers to account. Wicked rulers let things go. They fail to punish the wicked. So a pastor who loves you is a pastor willing to confront you with your sin and willing to move forward in the process of discipline, if necessary, because of unrepentance which is something no pastor ever wants to a pastor something that a pastor never wants to have to do but must be willing to do for your sake and for the sake of the church and in our church which practices congregational polity the pastors cannot bring discipline to fullness without the consent and cooperation of the church which means that you as members also need to be aware that you should not tolerate sin which is to say you should not tolerate unrepentance. You should be willing to move forward in the process of discipline for those who do not repent of their sin. And we should never tolerate leaders who tickle our ears and adjust the message so that, uh, their, well, so that their tables always have food. If, the church, if people in the church stop freely giving to the church, the church stops freely paying <laughs> the ministers. And so is there a pressure on our pastors to not offend the people or not upset them to make sure they're always happy so that we always have a salary? Well, 
I thank the Lord we don't feel that pressure here, but it does happen in other churches or in other places. And we shouldn't tolerate a pastor if that's the way he's going to be. Well, he just says what we want to hear. Pastor should say what you need to hear. Number four. Do not be presumptuous or passive in your piety. Do not be presumptuous or passive in your piety. One of the things that's most terrifying that Micah exposes in Israel and Judah is their presumption. They're, they just assume. They just they have the word of God. They have the law of Moses and certain other writings. They have living prophets. They have the temple. They have an Aaronic priesthood, Levites. They have a capital city, Jerusalem. They have a son of David on the throne. They've got the Abrahamic covenant, which says Canaan is yours throughout your generations. They have the Davidic covenant, which says a son of David will sit on the throne forever and ever. It's, it's great. Everything's good. They presume, and again and again they assure themselves nothing can go wrong. Verse 11, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Remember, they lean. They lean on the Lord. They just presumptuous, they passively lean. You don't really actively use a walking stick. I mean, sure, you do actively use it, but you just assume every time you put it down, it's going to hold you up. They also lean on the Lord and presume everything will be fine. But then God says, when you cry for deliverance, I will not deliver you. When you ask for my word, I will not speak to you. Why? Because you oppressed the helpless. You corrupted justice. You rejected my word by telling the true prophets don't preach and paying the false prophets to continue their false message. You have corrupted my worship. You have corrupted my word. You have corrupted my people. You will suffer. Well, that couldn't possibly happen to the church, right? I mean, we have the best confession of faith. We have a good constitution. We have a great church. We have elders and we have deacons and we have a membership and all kinds of things. We've got it. We're good. We should not be presumptuous or passive, just leaning in our piety, in our religious life. Because it's not being in a religious community that guarantees true religion. It's not just being here. It's not having the right outward forms or pieces of paper that guarantees true religion. It's not even having the word of God read to you or preached to you that guarantees true knowledge or faith or obedience. It's not having preachers that guarantees true religion. We should not be passive or presumptuous in our piety, that is, in our worship, in our religious life. Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea, and he said he would spit them out because they were neither hot nor cold, and they said, he said, you think I have need of nothing. They were presumptuous and passive. Brothers and sisters, we too can be presumptuous and passive because the Lord has so richly blessed us. And so we need to be careful, and I call on you to revive your hearts 
Do not be passive or presumptuous, which is to say, when the very word of God, pure and perfect and true, is read, heaven is speaking. When we sing and when we pray, we sing and we pray to the glorious majesty who made all things and sustains all things, who has given us life and new life and for whom we exist. That great and glorious God is the one to whom we sing. You're not singing to the person next to you. You're not praying to the person next to you. And it's not just the mouthpiece from here or that microphone later in the afternoon who prays. You should be praying too. And you should sing as unto the Lord. And you should give a hearty amen to the prayers. And a hearty amen as we sing. Sing to the Lord without caring who's around you. Because it's not about the people around you. It's about praising the almighty, holy, holy, holy God. But are you passive and presumptuous? Well, they're praying and this is my rest time. Or just, I say the words on the screen. I sing the words on the screen. I sing the words on the screen. I hear the, the new next chapter, Old, New Testament, Old Testament, next chapter, next chapter. Okay, yep, got it. This is what we do. We come here, we read these things, we say these things, we sing these things. This is our piety, and it's good, and it's all right. And we have the right confession, we have the right constitution, we have all the good stuff. We sing the right hymns, we do the Lord's Supper every, every week. You could very easily be presumptuous and passive in this. And you ought to revive your hearts. And by revive your hearts, I'm not calling on you for some kind of dramatic display of ecstasy. But rather, I call upon you to value rightly the ordinary, the regular, the ordained means of grace for what they really are, the conduit of heaven to us, bringing the grace of God won by Jesus Christ to us, to, to feed us and satisfy, satisfy us spiritually. Engage in the worship. There's nothing in the worship that you are not doing. When the word is read, you are listening to that word and reading it. When the, the songs are sung, you are singing. When the prayers are prayed, you are praying with that prayer. When the word is preached, you are listening and believing and obeying. When we all partake of the Lord's Supper, we all partake. So there's no church show where you just watch. And if that's how church is for you, revive your heart and repent of your presumption and your passivity. There are many churches like that, especially, um, it's not being big that's bad, but there are many big churches where it is basically just show up for a show and leave. I watch the praise band do their thing. I listen to the man give his eloquent message, and we all go home the happier because we were religious today. No. We, that is presumption and passivity, and Micah calls this out. We need to engage and be sincere and heartfelt. If the word is read to you or preached to you, but you passively receive it, you've wasted God's word. We just read this in the parable of the seeds and the sower. They all receive the same seed, the same message, the same word, but some believe for a, a moment and then the, the cares of this world choke them. You need to believe and lay hold of the word. Don't just be along the ride in the worship or you're wasting. Do you waste God's word? Do you waste God's worship? Answer this question. 
If God asked you, why should I not take away my presence and power from this church? How would you respond? No, 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 God, you can't take away your power and presence from this church because we have all the right documents and we do all the right things. Jerusalem had the temple. They had the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic high priesthood. They had all the things. Why should God not take his presence and power away from this church? Laodicea, Jesus said to them, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, brothers and sisters, am I saying that here at our church, we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let's not get to that point by being appreciative and engaged and sincere and enjoying and taking advantage of, in the best sense of the word, using all that Jesus has given to us. And he has given us so much. Brothers and sisters, did you know that this property, which extends from Estero uh, down towards some of those Biola apartments, this property is not zoned for a church or for what churches would be the kind of zone churches would be in. This whole property is zoned for medium-density housing, which means apartments. Why should this not be apartments? If it is the Lord's will, this will be torn down and apartments will be built because this is what this place is for, apartments. We should never give Jesus a reason for apartments to be built here. He should say, no, my church is here and they love me, and they serve me sincerely and with heartfelt faith. And I will not let this flame go out in this church in La Mirada. No apartment shall be built here. My church is here. We need to be zealous and alive and engaged with the worship. Amen, brothers and sisters? Fifthly and lastly, bear with me for going a little over time. There is one perfect prophet, uh, perfect prophet, priest, and king. There's one perfect prophet, priest, and king. Is Jesus Christ in Micah 3? This would be a good test case for the men's study that's going to go through Christ in the Old Testament. I guess we'll just do it now. <laughs> is Christ in Micah 3? You might say, no way. <laughs> but he is. In at least two ways. One of the ways that Jesus is here is by contrast. The Old Testament longs for perfection. It's longing for the prophet like Moses. It's longing for a priest that doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin, and that won't die. It's longing for a son of David who will actually lead the people in pure worship and obeying the law. And Micah 3 is all about how the current leaders of Israel and Judah at that time were infinite miles away from that standard. And so it makes you long and that longing is fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect prophet, who spoke the entirety of the word of God. He is the entirety of the word of God in himself. 
Hebrews 1. In the past, the message was partial and in different ways, in different times and places, but God has spoken now in these last days through his son, the perfect priest, pure, innocent, unstained, undefiled, ever-living, the perfect king. Does Jesus ever pervert injustice or fail to defend us? Or does he pervert justice and fail to defend us? Is there any complaint we could make about Jesus as our king? No, we would never say that because he's far better than we even imagine or conceive. Our king is perfect. He defends us. And Micah says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus spoke the same way, quoting from Isaiah. From Isaiah. Ooh, now I'm talking like Campbell. Isaiah. As Micah truly gives the word, Jesus truly gave the word. And so we do see Christ here. And we ought to rejoice that, that we may at times be dissatisfied with our own leaders constantly in our own country while honoring them. We find no complaint, no criticism, no discontentment in our prophet, in our priest, in our king, Jesus Christ. Would we say of Jesus that we lose and he wins in the relationship we have to him where he just, he just gets things more for himself and we suffer at his expense? It's completely the opposite, isn't it? That he gave himself completely for us and made us co-heirs with him. What is there that Jesus has that we don't have? Only deity. <laughs> Everything else is ours in Christ Jesus. And we are so united to the deity in him that there, there's still, there's nothing that could be ours that is not ours in Jesus Christ. So what a glorious contrast we see between Christ and the rulers of Israel and Judah. And that ought to make us love and believe in and lean on and serve our Lord all the more every day. Praise be his name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess our presumption and our passivity, and we pray that you would help us to be engaged, alive, alert, awake, even enthusiastic in our worship for you and our service for you, our faith and our obedience. We pray that we would see our sin rightly by how it hurts others as well as how it is judged in hell and was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray, Lord, that you would enliven us and help us to walk in your ways. We pray for our pastors, that you would help them to be faithful in declaring the message purely, and that they would not fail to confront sin when it is necessary and to lead the church in doing so. We pray, Lord, that you would watch over us and that you would perpetuate this church until your son returns. We pray that you would help us to never give you a cause to remove your power and presence from this place. We pray, Lord, that you would do these things by your power in and through us. And we pray it in Jesus' name.